Hello, I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And I have to tell you, Mr. Smiley, I was going up to get on my special things to wear and everything like that, and he was right there ready and said, let's go. So we are so delighted that you could be here today. And it also, as you can imagine, is an opportunity to let you know about some of the things that are happening at the Pratt Library. For one, all of our 21 branches in this building are entirely wireless with free Wi-Fi. And we're setting up new, and if you get a chance to go up on the second floor and in different places, we have new laptop lounges with comfortable seating and things like that. So please, and if you don't have a laptop when you come into the library, you can borrow one and use it anywhere in this building and also in the branches. The Pennsylvania Avenue branch is getting a makeover. It's going to be wonderful, and that just started in um, August. And we also have Ms. Sonia Sonia Sanchez coming, and if you haven't had a chance to uh, be with her and be in her presence, you really should uh, take that opportunity. Well, I have to also tell you that Mr. Smiley is such a special guest, and really it's like old home week when he comes to the Pratt Library. In fact, this morning on the radio show, one of the commentators mentioned that we should name a room after Mr. Smiley in the Pratt Library. <laughs> and it would be in keeping with the spirit of Mr. Pratt, who founded this library in 1886. He said, my library shall be free for all, regardless of race or color. And in 1886 in Baltimore, that was quite something. He gave a million dollars to have a place where people can come, exchange ideas, and feel free to be themselves and to find out about others. So we think a fitting legacy is to have Mr. Tavis Smiley here and to find out where we could put that room. So without further ado, Mr. Tavis Smiley. Oh, one more thing. Would you please, we cannot have um, any audio recordings, any devices, even though I said it's Wi-Fi, that's about all I know about all that. So any kind of electronic filming, devicing, and all of that, please, not tonight. Thanks so much, and here he is. Thank you, sweetie. Uh, before, before she has to run off and do uh, a gazillion things, uh, let me just say um, how much I absolutely adore Dr. Carla Hayden. I say all the time, I love her, and there ain't nothing she can do about it. I just love her. And she's been here now almost 20 years, about 18 years uh, at, at this institution, and so much of the good. She has a wonderful team, and every time I come back here, Dr. Hayden, I'm always so, uh, so, you mentioned old home week. Every time I come back here, it feels like home because... I see familiar faces, and I, I, I run a company of about 40 people between my radio and TV and internet operations and publishing company. We have about 40 or 50 employees, and I know how important loyalty is. And it says something about the leader when you come back, and the team is still intact. And every time I come in, I see the same lovely, gorgeous faces 
uh, same hardworking people at this institution or any of the others, 21 branches around this city, it says something about the person at the top. Dr. West and I have a very simple definition of what leadership is all about. For all the books and all the seminars and all the TV programs you can read or watch or be exposed to about leadership, we have a very simple definition, and it goes like this. You can't lead people unless you love people, and you can't save people unless you serve people. You can't lead if you don't love. You can't save if you don't serve. By that definition, all that really matters if you call yourself a leader is what is the depth of your love for the people and what is the quality of your service to them. And by that definition, there is no leader in this city that I celebrate more than Dr. Carla Hayden. So please thank her again for her leadership and her wonderful team, the entire team of all my friends here at Enoch Pratt Free Library. Uh, I'm just delighted to be back here once again. It's become my custom whenever I'm on the road for anything, any kind of tour that I'm doing, uh, it's become my custom that Baltimore is at the top of the list. I am always, y'all didn't clap loud enough on that. Yeah. Uh, Baltimore is always at the top of my list. I, I, I get, I get, uh, I get uh, a little disconcerted by people who think that that other city down the road is the only stop in this region. Uh, I will go there uh, as I did yesterday. Uh, but on my way to New York, I'm going to come through Baltimore. And so we got off the train today uh, to stop here to spend some time with you tonight. And we'll head on to New York uh, tomorrow, uh, late tonight, but uh, for appearances tomorrow. And I'll tell you a little bit more about where you can see us over the next few days. Uh, before I go any further, though, uh, let me give you regards, warm regards, from Dr. Cornell West, who has been at this library many times before. I will tell him you said so. Uh, been here many times before. And we're on a three-week tour for the new book, which we'll get to in a moment. And today was the only day, the only day in three weeks, where we absolutely had to separate because we both had two commitments. There were commitments that had been made that we couldn't get out of and couldn't get around. And so we had to pull straws today uh, as to who was going to actually make it to Baltimore. And I thought that Dr. West, if, if those who have ever been exposed to Dr. West, you know how gentle and how humble and how kind and how generous and charitable that he is. So when I expressed that I wanted to come to Baltimore as opposed to the other city, I thought he was going to acquiesce and say, oh, Brother Tavis, that's fine. You go ahead and do that. Not so. This Negro said, we're pulling straws on this one. Um, and so we, we, we literally had to pull straws, and I pulled the long straw. So uh, I get a chance tonight to be in Baltimore, and he is stuck in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so I, I just talked to him a few minutes ago, and he's still mad at me that I, that I pulled the long straw. Uh, but he sends his regards, and we just absolutely uh, just hate the fact that this is the one stop where we couldn't actually be together on the tour. But, but I'm here, and uh, more importantly, you are here. Uh, and more importantly, we're going to talk tonight about poverty in America, the moral and spiritual issue of our time. Poverty, the moral and the spiritual issue of our time. We'll get to all that in just a second. Um, so I was saying a moment ago that I never take a tour for anything without coming through Baltimore because it means so much to me. And I'm always amazed that every time I come here that y'all actually show up. Uh, I know there are a thousand things to do in Baltimore and particularly showed up on a rainy evening. Um, and so it just, it just um, humbles me to no end. I never ever get tired of coming here and never ever get jaded by the fact that when I come to this great city, people who have seen me and heard me a thousand times continue to show up. Uh, so thank you for honoring Dr. West. Thank you for honoring uh, my attempts at trying to make a contribution to our society. Thank you for your support uh, of this institution. Uh, again, I just want to start by saying how much I appreciate the fact that so many of you 
and pack this place out tonight. Thank you very much. It means a lot to me. After 20 years of doing this, you never want to take these things for granted. And I want you to know um, how much I appreciate your support um, of our work. Even when you don't agree with everything we say, that's okay too. Uh, I'm glad that, uh, that you were here. Here's what I want to do. I want to spend uh, a little time talking about the text. I'm going to take my watch off so I can pay attention to my time here. Talk a little bit about the text, uh, why we did it, uh, why the timing of it could not be more propitious. And then after I get done, <clears throat> I want to um, spend some good time with you, your questions and comments. Then I'm going to sit and sign every one of your books, and I'm going to run to catch a 928 train uh, to New York City. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, for those who want to follow us and, uh, and tell your friends, uh, first of all, our website is called therichandtherestofus.com, the name of the book, therichandtherestofus.com. We'll let you know where the tour is headed for the next few weeks, all the stops on the road, <clears throat> and other details you can find about the text on our website, again, therichandtherestofus.com. Just off my memory right quick, which is not much left given how fast we've been running already, I think tomorrow morning, uh, we are appearing on Morning Joe. So tomorrow morning, Dr. West and I are on Morning Joe. Uh, tomorrow night, we are on the Colbert Report. Um, yeah, I know. I know. <clears throat> Dr. West has been on Colbert a number of times. I have never been on. Uh, I like John Stewart. I like Colbert. I respect, with, I respect the work that they do and their own unique way of empowering and enlightening America about the issues of the day. But I, quite frankly, ain't one for getting skewered like that. Um, so I have, re- I have turned down every invitation they've ever offered me to come on their programs. And somehow, uh, Dr. West has reeled me into going on Colbert with him. So I'll be the one holding on to his arm real tight, hoping that Colbert doesn't diss me too bad tomorrow night, uh, particularly for not coming on this program all these years. I know he's going to razz me about turning him down all these times. But anyway, tomorrow night we will be on um, Colbert Report. On Friday morning, we are on – I'm missing I'm, – I'm, I'm losing it now – uh, tomorrow morning, uh, morning Joe, tomorrow night Colbert. Uh, anyway, sa- Sunday morning, uh, there's a bunch of stuff in between. I'm, I should remember all this. Uh, but Sunday morning, for the first time ever, they are changing their format a little bit, and Dr. West and I will be the featured guest, just the two of us, on Face the Nation Sunday morning. We'll be on, on Face the Nation on Sunday. So a lot of stuff in between. But if you go to our website, you can kind of follow all the stuff and all the appearances we're going to be making. I just missed half the stuff we're doing in New York, but we're doing pretty much most of the major shows um, while we're in New York the next couple of days trying to get the word out about this text. Uh, how many have the book already? How many have it in your hand already? How many have it? Good. Okay, so that means all the rest of y'all, we're going to lock the doors when we get done here. And all the rest of y'all are going to get this. I wanted to kind of walk through this, and I will anyway, um, so you can kind of get an understanding for those who don't have it yet of what the book is. Um, it's always important for me to do this on these stops because I think that, that people need to have an understanding of, 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 of how we've laid this thing out. And every book obviously is uniquely different. I am a book lover and framing and format and design and layout and structure are important elements to me of any book. And so I want to just kind of walk you through right quick what the book is and then we'll talk about the contents more expressly. So uh, this book for starters is uh, a continuation of the work that Doc and I have been doing individually and collectively for the balance of our careers. I'm now in my 20th year of being in the broadcast business. He, of course, a few years older than me. He's been at this for a long time, um, 36, 37 years now uh, as a professor. Uh, I regard Cornell West as the leading public intellectual in this country. I didn't say black. I said the leading public intellectual in this country. And so I'm honored to have been uh, to have now for 25 years been the best of friends with him 
he is the big brother that I never had. I'm the eldest of 10 kids, uh, so I never had a big brother until I met Cornell West 25 years ago, uh, and he never had a little brother until he met me 25 years ago, and so uh, we have bonded uh, in uh, uh, such a wonderful way over these years, and I've been honored to sit at the feet of one who I regard as the Du Bois of our time. Uh, and to have established this relationship and friendship over 25 years has been a beautiful thing. Of all the things that we have done together, we have never written a book together. We've done all kinds of work together in this country, and for that matter, on the world stage. So for a lot of people, this is becoming a, an instant sort of collector's item because I don't know if we'll ever get around to doing it again. But this is the absolute first time we've done this together. We've both written. Uh, I didn't know that Doc and I were both knocked away, blown away rather, when somebody mentioned in one of our interviews yesterday that collectively we have written about 40 books between the two of us. Um, but this is the first one that we have ever done together, and I couldn't be more delighted to have done this with him. It is an outgrowth, outgrowth, I started to say a moment ago, of the work we've done individually and collectively for all the years of our career. But just in the last few years, we've gotten much more serious and much more aggressive. We've always been serious about it, but much more aggressive about the issue of poverty, given, as I said earlier, that we regard this issue as the moral the spiritual issue of our time. We argue in this text that poverty threatens our very democracy. Poverty threatens our very democracy. We argue in this book that poverty is a matter of national security. We'll come back to that. But our very democracy is threatened now by the expansion, the exponential growth of the poor in this country. It is, in fact, a matter of national security given this widening gap between the have-gots and the have-nots, between the rich and the rest of us. You cannot sustain a democracy when 1% of the people own and control 42% of the wealth. You cannot sustain a democracy that way. Louis Brandeis, <laughs> former judge, uh, the late judge Louis Brandeis put it this way, you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy, but you cannot have both. You cannot have both. And he was right about that. And this is where we are. I think uh, in America, for whatever reasons, we are uh, leery to even consider uh, what it means uh, that every empire in the history of the world has at some point faltered and failed. My read of history says that every empire in the history of the world has at some point faltered or failed. I don't know if it's our arrogance, our hubris, our narcissism, our patriotism, our nationalism, uh, our, our narcissism. Something won't even allow us as Americans to consider how close to the edge we really are. We won't even talk about, it's almost anti-American to even suggest that we are on the precipice of failing. We take on in this text the notion of American exceptionalism that too many people still are promulgating. How can America be an exceptional nation when one out of two Americans is living in or near poverty? 300 million of us, 150 million of us wrestling with poverty. You take the perennially poor, Put on top of that, the new poor, and we argue in this book that the new poor are the former middle class of all races, colors, and creeds. The persistent poor, the perennially poor, the new poor, and the near poor, you're talking 150 million people. Again, I repeat, you cannot sustain a democracy 
when half of your populace, when half of your citizenry is wrestling with poverty. This is what happened in Egypt. This is what happened in Tunisia. This is what happened in Yemen and other places in Libya. And we, for whatever reasons, don't even want to consider, uh, don't want to re-examine the assumptions that we have about our notion of exceptionalism uh, when, in reality, we're at the edge. And so Doc and I are not afraid to take this on. Last year, we went on a poverty tour in part because a few years ago, I was terribly upset when in the last race for this White House, and it's always fascinating to me, I just came off of my friend Mark Steiner's program on WEAA, and Mark, of course, is a member of this board at the library, and as you all know, great, great, great communicator for so many years in the wonderful city of Baltimore on radio. I never come to town without trying to drop in to see him, and so I just came off of Mark's show, the last thing I did before I came here, and he said to me, you know, from time to time, um, your name comes up on this program, Uh, in abstention, and when I told the audience that you were coming on today, I got a number of emails from people who are still five years later trying to understand why you are so hard on Barack Obama. Why do you hate the president? Why you so? Why you give Obama such a tough, such a tough time? And I gave Mark an answer. We might get to that a little bit later tonight, but I raised that to say this: four years ago, when we were running for the White House the last time, there were, as there typically are, three presidential debates. The economy four years ago was starting to slide. Four years ago, in three presidential debates, the word poor or poverty does not come up one time. These two gentlemen, McCain and Obama, are vying to be the leader of the free world. The word poor or poverty does not come up one time. Obama doesn't raise it. McCain doesn't utter it. The moderators don't even ask about it. Three debates, nobody concerned about the poor. We believe, Doc and I believe, that it is the telling of truth that allows suffering to speak. Somebody's got to tell the truth that the suffering is going to be addressed. If nobody speaks truth to power and to the powerless for that matter, then the poor end up being rendered invisible. And they start falling through these gaping holes in our so-called social safety net And that's what happens. And the worst thing you can do to a poor poor person is to make him or her feel invisible. And that's happened to too many Americans. And so they feel invisible and they, they get treated as a political afterthought. At best, a political calculation in a political election year. But when politicians heretofore, including Obama and the presumptive Republican nominee, Mr. Romney, when heretofore politicians uh, get away with speaking to the angst of the middle class... If I'm right about the fact, and if Doc is right, and we are right, if we're right about the fact that the new poor are the former middle class, who are you going to talk to this time? You can't get away with just talking about the middle class. The reality is we are losing the middle class. The middle class is disappearing in this nation right now in front of our eyes. So three, four years ago, that just got my goat just troubled me that, 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 that Obama and McCain, it's one thing for McCain not to mention, I wasn't expecting it, but I, I didn't like the fact that Mr. Obama ran through this campaign talking about the middle class and the signs were clear then that we were headed into a recession. And nobody wants to put the issues of poor people on the agenda, but I'm 
too hard on Barack Obama. Okay. I reminded Mark, Mark a moment ago <clears throat> to these persons who had emailed and called into the show, and I, I love how our memories get so short, particularly now I'm talking to my, my, my African-American brothers and sisters. Now, I've been in the media 20 years, 12 of those years, <clears throat> so more than half of that 20-year period, y'all heard me every day on Tom Joyner. And for all those years, I was one of the most celebrated Negroes in America. Everybody tuned in to Tom Joyner every morning to hear what Travis... <clears throat> What's Travis going to talk about today? So everybody tuned in for 12 years. And it's amazing to me how soon we forget how short our memories are about our work and our witness. Now, with me, because my work is all broadcast, it's all media-related, it don't take a whole bunch of research to go back and remember or to find out what I said and whether or not for 20 years I've tried to be consistent to the truth. And this is a charge that's been leveled at me, but it's also a charge leveled at, obviously, Dr. West. They have torn Cornell West a new one, tried to rip him to shreds over his holding Barack Obama accountable. So both of us have been catching this hell. In Cornell West's case, this Negro did 65 events for Barack Obama, 65 different dates around the country. He went and campaigned for Barack Obama, but now he's a hater. Two words, please. You don't do 65 dates and then end up hating on somebody. But you do believe in holding them accountable. Particularly and especially if you bust your behind to campaign to get the Negro elected, you're going to hold him accountable. No matter who the president is. And you ought to have expectations. To the victor goes the spoils. If you're going to look out for anybody, you give the folk who supported you the hookup. Not just your friends on Wall Street. And that's why we talk about plutocracy and oligarchy in this text and looking out for Wall Street but not Main Street not the side street and we're losing Americans by the millions every single day but we forget about what we've tried to do to be consistent to the truth so one of the reasons I'm just going to give a quick example about why it's so important to raise our voices in this propitious moment because we don't want to look up 10, 15, 20 years from now and regret that at the very moment that we saw the bottom falling out we didn't say anything. We didn't do anything out of deference to the black man in the White House. And we end up regretting this down the road. Now, it's very unpopular to say this now. It's unpopular to push the president on poverty right about now. Stop hating, Tavis. Stop hating, Dr. West. Unpopular to do this now. But it must be done. Why? We know now, 15 years later, that one of the primary reasons that women and children are falling faster into poverty than anybody else. One of the reasons for that was a law that our friend Bill Clinton signed 15 years ago that he couched and sold to us as welfare reform. We talk about it in the text. We refer to it as welfare deform. You recall Clinton famously said, we're going to mend it, but we ain't going to end it. Remember that? That was his, y'all remember this? We're going to mend it, but not end it. So he pushed through trying to move to the right, trying to be, uh, play, take another page out of the conservative playbook, that whole centrist Democratic leadership, DLC, political agenda. Uh, he wants to move to the middle, and so he uh, coalesces with these, uh, collaborates with these Republicans and passes welfare reform and sells it to us as mending but not ending welfare. 
there were people then, including Tavis Smiley and Cornell West, who were in the media, I was on Tom Joyner every day, saying this is a bad idea. It was a bad idea when the Republicans thought about it. When they thought of it, it was a bad idea. And the president is wrong to be buying into this. Peter Edelman, the husband of the great Marion Wright Edelman, who has a wonderful book coming out in just a matter of days called So Rich, So Poor. We ain't the only ones pushing this issue. He's a long-distance runner on this, as is his wife Marion. But his book is called So Rich, So Poor. And Peter Edelman has to be celebrated now. Fifteen years ago, he gave up his livelihood. He resigned his high position in the Clinton administration in protest over the signing of that welfare bill. And everybody laughed at Peter Edelman. They scoffed at Peter Edelman. The White House dissed him. Marion Wright Edelman and Hillary had been friends for years. They were at the wedding. They were in the wedding. And she was on the board of the CDF. Hillary was. And it just ruptured their relationship. Peter Edelman took a major risk for his economic end, for his income, to support his family, and for the work he'd been doing for all of his life when he and Marion met many years ago in Mississippi working for poor people. But nobody stood with Peter Edelman. He got laughed at. Fifteen years later, you can Google it, two Sundays ago, front page of the New York Times, an in-depth, deep, long story with analysis of how women and children are falling fastest into poverty right now, and to a large degree, it's because of the Welfare Act passed 15 years ago. Clinton's intent was for folk to go from welfare to work. And now in this economy, there ain't no jobs to go to. So now you go from work to welfare. And when you go to welfare, because we gutted the program, there's no there there. So now you just unemployed. And the numbers of women and children are greater than anybody else. What does it say about a nation that allows its women and children to fall into poverty faster than anybody else? What does it say about America? Don't talk to me about American exceptionalism. Something is wrong with a nation where this is the fact, that the younger you are, the more likely you are to be poor. That's our America. The younger you are, the more likely you are to be poor. So 15 years ago, when a few of us were saying this is a bad idea, folk forgot about that. When Clinton sat on his hands and didn't go into Rwanda to stop that ethnic genocide, the worst mistake he ever made, he and Madeleine Albright, I know she's coming here, I love her, she's a friend, but they were wrong. And when you love people, you tell them the truth, even and especially when they're your friends. You just got to tell them the truth. He didn't go into Rwanda. Clinton sandbagged Lonnie Guineer at the Justice Department. I jumped on him about that. Signed the welfare bill, jumped on him about that. Signed that racist. Yes, I said it. I can't stand Negroes who throw that R word around too easily because when, when done, when used uh, uh, ineffectually, that R word would be like a boomerang come back and bite you in your behind like the boy who cried wolf. So everything and everybody ain't racist. But the crime bill that Clinton signed was racist. You got to get caught with a hundred times more crack cocaine than powder cocaine to get the same sentence. A hundred times more powder, rather, than crack. A hundred times more powder than crack to get the same sentence. Clinton signed that into law. Nobody said anything except a few of us who were saying, this is bad. 
And now we see the prison industrial complex having exploded because of that nonsense. It's what Michelle Alexander in her courageous book calls the new Jim Crow. The new Jim Crow. Are y'all seeing the point I'm making here? Even folk appear to be your friends or are your friends. And even when they're better than the alternative, sound familiar? That doesn't mean you stop pushing. Great presidents aren't born, great presidents are made. They have to be pushed into their greatness. There is no Abraham Lincoln without Frederick Douglass pushing him. There is no FDR without A. Philip Randolph pushing him. There is no LBJ without MLK pushing him. Great presidents are not born, they are made. They have to be pushed, pushed, ushered, cajoled, sometimes kicking and screaming into their own greatness. Do we want Barack Obama just to be? Hmm. I don't want him just to be a transitional president. I want him to be a transformative president. But that doesn't happen unless we push him. He ain't Jesus. He don't walk on water. He ain't perfect. And so we got to push him lovingly and respectfully. I wanted to get into that since Mark asked me about that on the radio about why we're so hard. Now, this book is not a treatise on Barack Obama. What we argue in this text is that there is a bipartisan consensus in Washington. And you know how tough that is to do. But there's a bipartisan consensus in Washington that the poor just don't matter. Poverty is just not a priority. You know why? Yeah, you know why. Because they're both beholden to big money. Both parties beholden to big money. Both parties in the pockets of these banksters. And so we can't get any real conversation in Washington about the poor. I mentioned Johnson a moment ago. How is it? Think about this. This ain't rocket science. How is it? Why is it that we have not had a conversation, a sustained conversation about the poor in this country from the White House since LBJ? Some of us weren't even born, weren't even, weren't even born during that time. Which means that in our lifetimes, ain't nobody, pardon my English, ain't nobody in the White House in our lifetimes ever talked about taking seriously the plight of the poor. Nobody has made a priority. And obviously, that includes Democrat and Republican presidents. Since LBJ? Really? Are you serious? <clears throat> Not even a priority. No, no, nobody talking about it. Since LBJ and his war on poverty. You know why? Because it takes courage. It takes conviction. It takes commitment. It takes risk. Too many leaders don't really want to do that. I said earlier, leadership is about loving and serving people. What is the depth of your love? What is the quality of your service? And we can't go through another campaign season, as I intimated earlier, where the issue of poverty just doesn't get addressed given that the future of our democracy is at stake, given that this is not a, ma a matter of national security. So Doc and I get on this tour bus last summer. I'm still smarting from four years ago when they wouldn't even talk about poverty. Fast forward four years, half of us are now in it. And we took a poverty tour last summer, 11 states, 18 cities. We gave up part of our summer to go on the road on the poverty tour. The poverty tour, the schedule, the routing, everything in the book. You can see where we went, who we saw. Americans of all races, colors, and creeds. We started the tour on a Native American reservation. 
they always get left out of the conversation. I asked them on the tour, what about the Great Recession? How has the Great Recession impacted the Native American community? You know what they said to me? What recession? It's always this way around here. So we talked to our red brothers and sisters. We went to the barrio, we went to the ghetto, we went to, uh, we, we went to West Virginia, we went to Memphis, we went all around the country, 11 states, eight, we sweet in one night in Washington, and we stayed with poor people on the tour. We stayed with poor people on the road. And one night in the nation's capital, a matter of steps away, a matter of steps away from the nation's cap, from the, from the actual U.S. capital, Dr. West and I spent the night sleeping outside on the sidewalk with homeless people. Stayed up half the night talking to them, but we slept on the street at night with them amongst all the other stops on this tour. We wanted to get an accurate picture of what the new face of poverty looks like in America. The problem with this conversation about poverty, there are many problems, but one of them is <clears throat> when we think poverty, we tend to think of color-coded. In other words, you think poverty, you think black. You think poverty, you think brown. That is not the case. I've said it three times, I'll say it again. Americans of all races, all colors, all creeds are now wrestling with poverty. This ain't rocket science. When I say that one out of every two of us is in or near poverty, that's one you, one you, one you, one you, one you, one you, one you. That's how serious this is, y'all. So the person next to you in the store, in the mall, at a restaurant, walking down the street, at work, in church, poverty has a new face. And somebody's got to tell the truth about what that face really looks like. Tomorrow night on Colbert, I don't know whether it's to come up or not, but we talk about an episode of his show one night when he happened to have Peter Edelman on his show. The occasion was a discussion of the report released by the Heritage Foundation, conservative think tank in Washington, as you know, that wanted to redefine poverty. And their argument was that most Americans ain't poor. And their criteria were this. If you have a cell phone, you ain't poor. I know it's laughable, but that's what the report, this is a conservative think tank advancing this notion. If you got a cell phone, you ain't poor. If you have a refrigerator where you live, you're not poor. If you have a microwave, you are not poor. So you see where the right is coming with this, trying to redefine what it means to be poor. It always cracks me up how whenever they don't want to play the game, they just try to change the rules. The reality is that there's class warfare. There's a game. There's a game of class warfare in this country being waged against the poor. But rather than talk about that reality, they want to change the whole language, the whole glossary. They want to change the language and terminology and redefine what it means to be poor. But that's exactly, exactly, that's nonsensical. It's absurd. And so Colbert had an episode with Peter Edelman on where Peter got a chance to really put this in context. It was a great episode, and Colbert used his wit and wisdom to really, uh, just really, just, just, oh, it was funny. Uh, he just totally unloaded on the Heritage Foundation for this ridiculous and preposterous notion of, of, of this new definition of poverty. I raise that because in the book we talk about the fact that with all the data so clearly laying out who America is and what America is right now, there are still too many poverty deniers in this country. People, don't, people who don't want to accept that poverty exists in this country. 
There's a Pew study we talk about in this book that finds that those former middle-class Americans who are now poor, they have lost their home, they've lost their cars, they've lost their 401k, they've lost their savings, they've been unemployed for years. We saw them, white Americans all over the country. We saw them on the tour. Their stories, their narratives, their narratives are weaved into the text. We saw this. The Pew study finds that when they interview these persons, they don't want to acknowledge or admit that they are poor. Now, from a psychological perspective, I get that. You don't want to own that. You don't want to buy into that. You don't want to think that way. I get that. But that cuts both ways. Because we have so demonized and so criminalized the poor in this country, folk don't want to wear that moniker, admit to that label, although they broke. They're homeless. I ain't poor. Okay. Um, again, I get the psychological rationale and reasoning for that but it's in part because we have so again demonized what it means to be a poor person that nobody wants to my friend says we give poor people the Heisman for all you sports fans that's how we treat poor people in this country and that's unacceptable we took this poverty tour last summer to get a good sense what the face of poverty looked like that poverty tour turned into a week-long five-night special on PBS because I had a documentary crew in tow with me. We've had other national conversations about these issues since then. The book is the next step in this conversation about pushing this issue higher up the American agenda. And the book has a simple framework. Um, The first chapter is called A Portrait of Poverty. It's important that we understand how we arrived at this place. The first chapter is A Portrait of Poverty. After that, we move into a chapter about the poverty of opportunity. And the framework is very simple, poverty of opportunity. Next chapter, poverty of affirmation, poverty of courage, poverty of compassion, a poverty of vision, a poverty of imagination in this country. Other countries have addressed this issue. This is not a skill problem, it's a will problem. Do we have the will? In Chile, from 1987 to 2009, They reduced poverty from 48% to 11% in Chile. They still got issues, but they had a a national plan to reduce poverty in that nation. We made great progress. We made great progress after the war on poverty, when we made it a priority. There's one thing we all know in this room. Whenever this country makes anything a priority, it gets done. We will go to war with no money. We will print money. We will make money to go to war under false pretenses with no exit strategy and stay there 12 years longer than we should have been there in the first place, but we'll find the money. When it becomes a priority, it gets addressed. We lay out in this book a whole chapter on the 10 worst lies, the 10 big myths about poverty, about poor people. I'm so sick of people believing and suggesting that if you're poor, it's your fault. As if you laid yourself off. As if you sent your job overseas. As if you are the one who raped and pillaged your 401k. As if you are the one that pushed back on yourself vis-a-vis collective bargaining. As if you just for no reason just stop making your house payment as if you for no reason just stop making 
I don't feel like making a car payment no more. I got the money. I'm just not making my car payment no more. As if you just decided, you know, I like, I like food stamps. I, I think I'm going to get me some food stamps. It's, 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 it's preposterous. People are not poor. So many Americans these days are not poor because of their own doing. So the notion that to be poor is somehow reflective of illustrative of a character flaw, bad judgment, bad choices. Herman Cain said in the Republican campaign when he was in, if you're poor, blame yourself. Mitt Romney calls it the politics of envy. Ain't nobody mad at you for what you, I don't want to be near Mitt Romney, much less be Mitt Romney. I don't want, Mitt Romney ain't got nothing that I want. I am not envious of you and neither is anybody else in America. What we like, what we hate rather, what we hate is hypocrisy. What we hate is unfairness. What we hate are you taking advantage of loopholes. What we hate is you getting rich for making nothing. You don't make nothing. And you made all this money by manipulating and using and exploiting people. That's how you got rich. The American people hate that. We want a level playing field. We want access to fundamental affairs. We want our own opportunity at self-determination to use the God-given skills and talents that we have to make a contribution to this country. But don't nobody want what you have. I just want my own or an opportunity to have my own. So we, have, we, we try to debunk these myths and lies about poverty. And finally, the poverty manifesto part, we lay out 12 ideas that must be embraced right now to reduce and eradicate poverty in our country. Among the 12, right quick, the next president of the United States ought to have as his make, make as his first official act, the signing of an executive order to call for a White House conference on the eradication of poverty in America. Barack Obama, <laughs> Barack Obama did a wonderful thing, did a beautiful thing that I celebrate. And I remind people all the time, there are a lot of things Obama has done that I celebrate and I agree with. One of them was the first thing he did when he signed that Lily Ledbetter law for women in the workplace. Brilliant piece of legislation. I'm glad he did it. Glad he did it. But the first official act of the next president ought to be the signing of an executive order calling for and establishing a White House conference on the eradication of poverty. Bring the poverty experts together. This ain't rocket science. Let's create a national plan over 10, 15, 25 years to reduce and eradicate poverty. Other nations have done it. We can do it. And these programs, these ideas already exist. Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia has one. Catholic Charities has one. Marion Wright Edelman has one. Jim Wallace at Sojourners has one. There are all kinds of think tanks and, and institutions in this country that, are, that have created plans, detailed research for how we can reduce and eradicate poverty in this country over a time certain period. But it requires us getting serious about it, having a leader who's going to bring us all together in Washington at the White House, using that White House bully pulpit, connecting your legacy to one of reducing poverty in your second term, if that is to happen. That's the kind of legacy that I would be proud of. That's the kind of effort that I would support. That's the kind of leader that I want to see. I don't want just another garden variety politician. I want him to be a statesman. I want him to be regarded not just as a symbolic first African-American president, but as one who really put America on the right track who helped restore America to its greatness, who helped save America from losing its democracy. And that's the bottom line.
Either you get serious about poverty. My time is up. I want to go some Q&A here. Either we get serious about poverty or we lose our democracy. It's that simple. This ain't about black and white. It's about wrong and right. What kind of nation do we really want to be? What kind of people do we want to be? What kind of lives do we want to live? What kind of legacies do we want to leave? Those are the fundamental questions. It's not that deep. What kind of nation do we want to be? What do we want to bequeath to generations of American children who are not even born as yet? That's the fundamental question we're faced with right now. And I submit to you in closing that if we do not get serious about poverty in America right now, this may be our last best chance to turn this around. People get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And at some point, they're going to stop being nice. And that's not calling for anarchy. That's not my point. I'm just trying to speak some truth that something has got to be done to alleviate and to address this issue. And so this book, The Rich and the Rest of Us, is our effort, Cornell West and my effort, to try to put this issue again on the agenda, to push it higher, and to ensure, along with your help, that we will not let our body politic, we will not let our leaders or our future leaders get away another time with not making the concerns of poor people a priority in this country. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your time. All right. How are we doing this? All right. We got a, ro- we got a roving microphone over here to the left right here. We got a roving microphone. We're going to take about 20 minutes of questions and comments. I'll make my responses brief, and we'll sit and sign your books. And Yes, sir. Actually, it started with Reagan when he pushed the men out of the house, and then with Clinton, they pushed the women out of the house, and now we say the educational system falls apart because there's no parents to take care of the children. Amen. As we say in the black church, in that first chapter about the portrait of poverty, we absolutely talk about the fact um, that you're right. Uh, Reagan gutted. For, I mean, this myth about Reagan's brilliance is so, it's so mythical. I mean, it's just, you know, I, it's, what, what, whatever credit, and I don't want to demonize him in death, whatever credit you want to give Ronald Reagan for whatever he did, whatever credit you want to give for whatever he did, he did it on the backs of poor people. The numbers are so clear about that. The data is so clear about that. There's a wonderful treatment of that in the text. If ever you get into a conversation again with one of your conservative friends about how brilliant Ronald Reagan was, just go to chapter one. You got all the resource, all the detail you need to win that argument about Ronald Reagan. And again, to your point, Clinton came behind it and unfortunately continued some of that. Clinton was a great president, did a lot of good. But again, these politicians are not perfect, and that's why we got to hold them accountable. But I couldn't agree more. Other questions, comments? I know we, you got one mic. You in trouble? Come here. I, I'm going from side to side. I make you work. You gonna lose some weight tonight? Um, fairly early on in the uh, uh, administration, uh, Van Jones was fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Beck made found some information. He made a big fuss about it and got him pushed out of the White House. Van Jones was hired to create jobs, green jobs. Right. I think people still think that jo- a job is the best anti-poverty program we can come up mm-hmm. with. How do you see us getting back to that? How, how can we get the president and the Congress back to 
creating a publicly financed jobs program? And how do we engage the public in that? I think you're speaking to the choir tonight. Right. And there are a lot of people who are poor and very poor that we need to get right. uh, involved. It's a brilliant question. The shorter answer is, as I'm trying to get as many questions in as I can, just keep your hands up and he'll find you. We can come, back, come back to this side. You got my, oh, good, good. Two sides, thank you. The short answer very, to your brilliant question is that um, we do need a jobs act. We talk in the book about whether or not, this is going to be an age-old debate. For time eternal, they're going to be debating whether Barack Obama had it backwards, whether or not he should have talked about jobs, jobs, jobs first and gotten to health care second. That debate may be fruitless in the long run. Dr. Weston, I believe it should have been jobs, jobs, jobs first, then the health care program. But again, that's a White House calculus that I can't get into for why he did what he did. But millions of Americans are still suffering right now, and it's really going to be, I was going to say laughable, but ain't nothing funny about it. It's really going to be horrific if this Supreme Court, after all the political capital he wasted, ends up gutting this mandate. Because if they kill the mandate with their decision this summer, the whole law is irrelevant, basically. So all that time, energy, and effort spent on health care, the Supreme Court gutted when you should have been talking about jobs, jobs, jobs in the first place. That's why I think it was a mistake. How do we get back to that? I don't know. And I don't know because, I want to be honest, the talk about austerity in Washington is getting louder and louder every day. And I can guarantee you, if Mitt Romney does, in fact, beat Barack Obama, it's going to be a long time before we get to that. The last chapter of this book starts out with us telling the story of a conversation we heard about between Stephen Jobs, the late Apple CEO, and Barack Obama, President Obama, a conversation about jobs, as in work. Uh, and the president was thinking about laying out this program he called insourcing, which he talked about, you recall, a few weeks back in January in his State of the Union address. So he finally got that program together, and his speech was built around this notion of insourcing. We're not going to outsource jobs. We're going to insource jobs back to America. That when Everybody applauded. Everybody stood up. That was the hallmark of his speech back in January. He talked to Steve Jobs about that before he gave that speech, before Jobs died, obviously. And Steve told him, Mr. President, those jobs that have been outsourced, they ain't coming back. They're not coming back. And we talk in the book about that in this last chapter, a poverty of imagination. And what troubles us is Doc and I wrestled and beat our heads against the wall in this last chapter. And we could not, between the two of us, and this is the most brilliant Negro I've ever met, <laughs> we could not, between the two of us, come up with one good reason for why a corporate CEO, for all the trash they talk, what is, the, what is the rationale, the reasoning for any corporate CEO these days hiring back more people? What's the reason for expanding your payroll? The only reason why you would ever do that, because your shareholders want what? Profit. You've already laid off 10, 15, 20,000 people. You ain't bringing them folk back because you can keep the company running without them. And you look good now because you've cut expenses and profit is back up. You saw this story today, front page New York Times. Is it Citibank? They pushed back, thank God for Jesus, they pushed back on his executive pay package because this is out of control what these CEOs make. They literally pushed back on his pay package. The shareholders said, no more. That's the sign of the Occupy movement taking hold. That a corporate CEO gets told you are, by the shareholders, we're not raising your salary. You're not going to get all that no more. So we're now starting to see a little bit of pushback, a little bit of fight back. But I can't think of why they would hire anybody. The only reason why you do that is if there's such a huge demand for your product that you have to put more folk on the assembly line to make more product. Other than that, there's no reason to do that. 
These folk are not concerned about putting Americans back to work. They're concerned about making what? Money. Profit. That's what it's all about. So I don't know how we get back to that place. It ain't going to ever be, I think, like it was. And that's the hard truth that Steve Jobs told Barack Obama and his mouth fell open. The president was flummoxed when Steve Jobs told him that. They ain't coming back. You can talk insourcing all you want. You know how much money we make with cheap labor over there? Thank you. Our shareholders like profit, Mr. President. They're not coming back. So the answer to your question, on a positive note, is the only way that happens is that the American people demand it. And those of us who are wrestling with poverty or know people who are poor, that's why this issue is so important. I keep saying this is not hyperbole. If we keep shipping jobs abroad and Americans keep falling deeper into poverty, you're going to lose your democracy. It is a matter of national security. These are not just words that Doc and I are saying. We absolutely believe this. So this is about saving our country as we know it. Thank you. Yeah. Paid off, you got more work to do. You have to run faster just to keep your job. So maybe we ought to slow down the work and maybe slow down the profit so more we, people can get hired. We, we could debate that. We can definitely slow down the greed. We can slow that down, that's for sure. Yes. Uh, uh, Travis Miley, uh, would you expound on the core relationship between poverty, social pathologies, and criminality? If you mention uh, Michelle, and most of those folks who are incarcerated, young folks ain't pitching, selling drugs to be, get a tuition to be a, what, uh, pathologist. You know, they're selling it because of their president. The American dream has become the American nightmare, and it's an industry. So will you show that core relationship, please, sir? It's a powerful question. We talk about that in the book. Um, that we, we argue, as I said earlier, that we, we don't like people being demonized uh, for having character flaws because they are poor. But there's no doubt about the fact, and Doc has spent his time talking about this. I've done numerous TV programs and numerous radio programs. Last year, I did a primetime special for PBS about the plight of African-American boys in this country specifically. So we're both on record talking about this issue. I've said to black folk for years, specifically black people, in free financial literacy programs uh, around the country. I've traveled for years doing this kind of free financial literacy work. And I've said to my people for years, too many of us spend money we don't have, buying stuff we don't need, trying to impress folk we don't even like. So there is a responsibility that we have there is a financial responsibility that we have, and, and, and it's true uh, that uh, there are too many young men in our community who feel like they don't have other choices, they don't have other options, and they're trying to make some money quick and fast. Y'all know that story here well in Baltimore. Uh, but I believe that when you love people, you don't ever give up on them. And if we, if, if we were serious about poverty in this country and really had opportunity for Americans to express their God-given skill and God-given talent, we could turn a lot of that around. But it's going to start with loving people which means giving them and believing in them uh, and, their, and, their, and their best potential. So I couldn't agree more with you about that, but we want to focus here on how we turn that around and not further casting aspersion and demonizing the folk who are already caught up in that web. Thank you for your question, though. Yes, sir. Uh, first off, good evening, Mr. Smiley. Good evening. And my question is, is that I hear how you talk, you know, the things you say about President Obama. President Obama, mm-hmm. but I don't hear a lot of other African-American leaders saying the same thing that you're saying. And I agree with what you say, so could you tell me why you think they're not saying, voicing some of their opinions about that is the president? E- and the second question, sure, yeah. 
can I get a picture? Because, you know, <laughs> I really like you, and, you know, I want to get a picture. I'm sure at the end. I put on my Facebook. I'm sure, I'm sure at the end we can work that out. The, sh- the short answer to why is that they, they like being invited to the White House. Most of these Negroes, who are these so-called black leaders, love access. And there is a price you pay when you speak this kind of truth. Your access gets cut off. There's a reason why Cornel West has not been invited to the White House. There's a reason why, for the first time in my entire career, I have never not been invited to the White House for a variety of things. I've never not been offered the opportunity to sit and interview the president. Bill O'Reilly has done it three times. And you know he hates Obama. And he cuts him off and disrespects him every time they talk. And Obama keeps talking to the fool. I mean, keeps talking to Bill. He keeps doing it. But there's a reason why he won't talk to me. So for all these folks who are in love with Barack Obama, I love him too. But you got to look a little deeper into this. This president, in many ways, does not want to be challenged, does not want to be taken to task. And Dr. West said this, and all hell broke loose. He said Barack Obama is afraid of free black men. He said that, and man, they came after Cornel West. You know, he said he's afraid of free black men, not afraid of black people. But how did you sit with Bill O'Reilly three times? How have Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity been invited to the White House? I, I mean, you, you, you got to have a better answer than, than I, I ain't got. A, I ain't got a good answer for you on that. So you got to ask the president when you, when you when you talk to Barack again. Ask him that. Yeah. But but the point is that they don't want to ask. They don't. They don't. These black leaders don't want to speak this kind of truth because it cuts off their access. And Dr. King was the grand example of this. When King came out against the war in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson turned him away from the White House. King, in the last two or three years of his life, could not get invited to the White House. Johnson would invite all the other Negro leaders, A. Philip Randolph and Roy Wilkins and Whitney Young and all of them. King, not invited. This is the man who had gotten the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act passed. This man is a Nobel laureate, the youngest in the history of the world. To win a Nobel Peace Prize. Johnson kicks him to the curb. He will not let Martin get it. He won't invite him to the White House. And then, better than that, 55% of black people in the last poll taken in King's life, the Harris poll, 55% of his own people had turned against him. And writ large, 72% of Americans had turned against Martin King. And now, all these years later, Martin is the man. They got monuments, holidays. This Negro's the Mac Daddy all these years later, you know? But in his life, when he died on that balcony, he died believing that everybody, including his own people, had turned against him. So Doc and I, you know, we take Martin's life. We're not, we're not Martin and ain't trying to be. We are trying to make the world safe for his legacy. But we know who we are. And part of knowing who we are, and that's why it's good to have a good brother. Why it's good to have a, a, a partner who works with you and who loves you and respects you. Because this ain't for the faint of heart. And when I'm getting shot and stabbed, it's good to have Cornel West to, you know, to, to, to console you. I mean, he's getting shot and stabbed. I appreciate that, sweetie. It's, pre- it's good for me to be able to console him. But we understand that, that in the long view of history, in the long view, we're going to be right where we want to be, having stood with fidelity and with truth to those things that we believe. Yes, in the back. Oh, hi. Good evening. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, you mentioned... Uh, you were talking about Chile and uh, how they uh, lowered the poverty rate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just was wondering if you know about the, one of the, uh, there's a Chilean economist uh, called Manfred Max Neve. Mm-hmm. And I think he's been working on the same issue. And he's, uh, I think he's been talking about uh, creating a new language for 
people that are poor and then you know like examples like you know when you talk about people about you know the stock went up and all that people that are poor that's there's a language that doesn't make sense to them right so it's, you know he i guess he's, he's done some work on that so just i'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. i don't know his work but remember write that name now i want to look that up um thank you for saying that i don't know his work but i i will look it up yes sir what you got uh, we, we need some women. We got, I'm talking to all men. All the sisters are being left out of the conversation. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Smiley, for being here and, and your efforts on uh, bringing uh, poverty to the forefront. My question is, I'm a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and I'm currently uh, researching and working on a, a documentary titled Any Black Man Will Do, Racial Profiling in America. Right. I'm doing a historical and present-day account of racial profiling. And my question is, uh, based on my research, I found that not only is African-American men uh, disproportionately racial profiled, but I found that in most communities where there are poor people, those people are also That's disproportionately right. uh, uh, profiled and targeted by their law enforcement. That's right. And my question is that uh, how can you, can you touch on a little bit about how um, financials, um, how uh, crimes of the poor equate to financial uh, sure. and riches we, to the criminal justice system? It's a powerful, powerful question. We talk about that in the book. I mentioned tonight a couple of times about the criminalization and the demonization of the poor. That's precisely what we were talking about. When I referenced Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, that we talk about and do a treatment of in this book as well, there's absolutely a link between the two. And there's a reason why the fat, you're doing the film so you know this, there's a reason why the fastest growth industry in this country is what? The prison industrial complex being run by for-profit private companies. And Doc makes the point all the time that you got to have somebody, you need new customers all the time to keep that private enterprise growing. So there's absolutely a link between crime and poverty. But more expressly to your point, there's a link between a whole bunch of rich people who make money off a whole bunch of poor people. Yes. Yes, I'd like to thank you for being here and for being one of the truth tellers. Thank you for saying that. Because it takes a courageous heart to do that, and there just really aren't enough. So you are the drum major for many of us. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, what I would like to say is, I think it was Muhammad Ali who said, service to others is the rent we pay for our room here on this earth. That's right. And one cannot do that to service other people if indeed... You don't know how to love others. Uh One of the things that has puzzled me in reference to our president is that issues like drugs is never mentioned. Uh Aside from poverty, aside from the lack of a quality education for our future children. Now, how can we have a society that is a society that takes care of its people if we don't look at all of these different areas. Right. So what I would like to say, being one of the occupiers and one of the 99 percenters, I paid my fair share, and the 1% should also. I hear you. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Wanted to sort of, well, I have a different topic, but I know you, you and Dr. West are devout Christians, and mm-hmm. I'm, I happen to be a devout Catholic. I teach at Catholic schools, and I always I ho- try to hold my faith under fire. The Catholic Church has a bad rap with other um, topics, as we know, and you mentioned Catholic charity. That's right. I feel like the Catholic Church is a champion for social justice, but it's always left out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, and it always baffles me, the religious right. Poverty never comes up, but if they're followers of Christ, like, have they read the gospel? So I was just wondering what you would have to say about that, like what people had to say about their faith, and especially with Christian, in all major religions, but especially how does faith come about in this when, in your it's a tour? a brilliant, brilliant, powerful question. We, in the text, 
Uh, and you're right, Dr. West and I are both Christians, both raised in the black church and proud of that and always unapologetic about that. And yet we don't want to proselytize because you don't have to be a believer um, to be uh, a person of good conscience, to be a person who cares about the poor, who believes in fundamental fairness. You can be atheistic and agnostic to the core and believe those things. So we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be territorial about that. Uh, uh, having said that, uh, it is baffling to us as well. And there's a whole chapter where we talk about that. The chapter, I think it's called The Poverty of Vision, I believe. But we take to task all of these so-called spiritual and uh, leaders and religious persons and persons, of, persons who say they are persons of faith who can't ever get around to doing the one thing that Jesus commanded of all of us, to love thy neighbor as thyself. It's the simplest and yet the most difficult of all the commandments. Uh, and that's why he and I have such a difficult time, Dr. West. I have a hard time trying to juxtapose how it is you can be a person of faith and not care about these particular issues. Part of the answer to that, I believe, is that in difficult times like these, people become more nativist. So they turn inward uh, and everybody hunkers down. It's about me and mine, it's survival of the fittest, or uh, in Wall Street, the survival of the slickest. Um, and so people just kind of turn in that way and we end up leaving these persons out in the cold. And that's what I meant when I said earlier that poor people are being rendered invisible. They're being forgotten. They're being ignored and they're falling through the holes, the gaping holes in this social safety net. And for those of us who are persons of conscience, persons of faith, believers, that absolutely, you know, is, is, is not the approach that we ought to be taking. If now, if now, if not now, more than any other time, we have to be more conscientious, more aware of the folk who are catching the most hell. And every one of us, you know, the sister over here, we might not all be uh, willing or able to go hang out with the Occupy folks. We can't sleep on the sidewalk. We can't do this. I, I get everybody can't do that. But every one of us has agency. Every one of us has a voice. Every one of us has a vote. Every one of us can raise these issues right where we are, whether we ever go hang out with the Occupy people. We thank them for the work that they're doing, but that does not abrogate us or excuse us of our responsibility, particularly and especially as people of faith, to raise our voices. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Thank you very much. Mr. Yes, sir. Mr. Smiley, let me make me aware we only have time for two more questions. Sir. Okay, we do one. One more here, one more here then. I'm sorry. Hi, Mr. Smiley. Uh, my name is Sean Breeze. I wrote an article for your PBS website. Thank um, you. Did I, did I agree with you? Yes, I okay, wrote, well, thank you, uh, poor by character no, flaw. Um, my question is, um, in regards to infrastructure in this country, we have grade D infrastructure, and we have unemployment rate for people with bachelor's degree around 4 to 5%, but we have um, unemployment for, with high school or lower around 19%. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it would be a direct um, match to do an infrastructure project. We have bad infrastructure, and people with high school degrees or lower are usually in the economy as is, only qualified to do work, which would be manual labor, which would be infrastructure work. Right. So it seems like a direct match to get us back to work. Why is the idea of a public works infrastructure pro project with roads, bridges, so forth, not a top priority when it seems like a direct match to get this 19%, which is the main part of unemployment, back to work. I couldn't agree more. The president, were he here, in fairness to him, would say that's part of what his stimulus package did, in fact, do. Some of that. He would argue that he would have wanted it to be, uh, to do more and to, and to be bigger. Uh, there's a wonderful book out now called Escape Artist by Noam Scheiber. I think, as a matter of fact, what's today? Wednesday? I think he's on my TV program. I taped a couple of shows before I left to, to come see y'all. 
I think Noam Shiver is the guest on my program tonight, and we talk about that. We talk about the two great failings of the Obama administration in his new book that's getting all the talk in Washington. The first mistake they made uh, was not making the stimulus big enough in the first place. And if it had been bigger, more of what you just suggested that needs to be done could have and should have been done. The second mistake they made was buying in too quickly to this notion of deficit reduction at a time of great recession. Those two things just cannot coexist in the same space because it just further depresses the economy. We talk about that tonight in this conversation with Noam. Uh, but I agree with you um, that, there, that you know, we, the president ought not to be so afraid. He ought to be more bold. I mean, for, think about this. For all the comparisons between Obama and FDR, y'all saw these comparisons everywhere. I mean, he was running, I mean, he got elected. There were all these Kennedy-esque. There were three presidents he was most compared to. Kennedy, for the style and the Camelot and all that. So he, a lot of Kennedy comparisons, his smoothness, his articulation. Kennedy comparisons. A lot of Lincoln comparisons, because he's from the land of Lincoln, both from Illinois. But more FDR comparisons than any other president. I, I, I did some research on this. More FDR comparisons with Obama than anybody else. Some of y'all famously recall the cover of Time or Newsweek where they morphed Obama's face into that FDR hat and the, the IP, the manacle and the, the cigar. Remember that? They morphed Obama's face on FDR. That's the cover of a national magazine. So there have been so many comparisons between FDR and Obama. Where is the comparison? There is no freaking comparison. When FDR was caught in this same situation, he went boldly into those kinds of public works programs. And he went out and he sold it to the American people and he famously said, judge me by my enemies. The bankers hated FDR and he didn't care. He laughed and loved it. He loved the fight and he took it to them. But I love our president, but he is so sometimes afraid of his own shadow. He compromises, he capitulates, he caves. And I know the argument, he's black, FDR wasn't black, he could do that. Well, politics ain't about, I mean, he was black when he ran, or at least half black, when he ran, you know. So let's summon the white part, if that's what it takes. <laughs> let's summon that part, if that's what it takes to be bold like FDR. But I'm telling you, the only way we get out of this mess is not by playing it safe. Playing it safe is not the answer to what ails this country right now. We are going to have to be bold in that FDR kind of tradition. Now, there are a lot of folk, and some of y'all are here tonight. I, I can see the looks on your faces. There are a whole lot of folk, mostly black folk, who believe that when this Negro gets a second term, ooh, Tavis, you wait. All the things that you and West want him to do, when he gets a second term, it's going to be on and popping. All the things that we thought he was going to do in the first term. That second term, woo! Put down the crack pipe. <laughs> That's not how presidential politics works. It doesn't work that way. And I don't want to see your heart just broken when after a second term, it just didn't quite work out. Reminds me of that joke that my friend... Cedric the Entertainer always tells about Luther Vandross. Remember Big Luther? Jerry Curl, Big Luther. And Cedric said, I always loved Big Luther, but there was something about his curl. It never just quite, curl didn't just quite curl. And I, I feel that way about President Obama. There's, I love him, but there's just something that just ain't quite, and that's why we lovingly push him. But you're right, we got to be more FDR-like in this moment. Last question or comment. Yes, ma'am. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Smiley. I'm here because I know that we are not going to have the economy we had in the 20th century. That's right. I'm aware there's got to be a change. However, as you say, if the 1%, the big corporations and all their chemicals and every, all their machinery and the threat of environmental degradation, which uh -huh. is upon us, I'm afraid that if we don't grab the reins and you say, push, 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 the whole species is going to devolve back to a state of Lucy by the end of the century. Lucy, the Afarensi skeleton, is three million years old. I'm really afraid of that. We're going to lose what made us what we call human. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, and what Doc and I, this ties into the question about the brother raised back here. What Doc and I argue in this book is that there, there's a way to stave that off, and these two things are connected again. You can be, we can find ways to be economically prosperous and save the environment at the same time. This goes back to the question the brother here in the front row raised when he, when he raised the name of Van Jones. That's what Van was attempting to do before he got run out of the Obama White House. How do we put Americans back to work in a green economy so that we save the environment and rebound the economy at the same time? That has not quite, it ain't quite worked out in this first term. So all the green jobs that we thought were going to come online, you know, have not materialized. And then Van gets kicked out on his behind, and the White House don't say nothing about it. The president ain't called him, ain't said nothing to him. Not because I'm telling you, I'm reading New York Times Magazine. Too. Van was a big story. Van has a new book out called Rebuild the Dream. In the New York Times Magazine the other day, they ran him out to the White House. He ain't heard from the president. The president said, I'm sorry what happened to you. I apologize. I'm still committed to this. Ain't heard nothing. This is the guy that the president picked to be his point person on these issues. I'm just saying you got to deal with the facts. You got to deal with the truth. But we were hoping that more were gonna, was going to come out of this first term. And I'm hoping that in a second term, we might get to that. Now, I don't never do this, but this brother is waving his hand like it's about to fall off. What is it that you have to say? I, 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 this, this, but I must need to hear this. Give me a microphone right quick. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold up. Get a microphone. I don't know, but you acting like I need to hear this or I'm going to die. So let me just hear this. More than you know. Tavis Smiley. Yes, sir. I don't know you from a can of paint. I know you from your work. Have loved and respected you. Okay? I got to tell you, and I'm not just speaking for myself, I know at least one other, well, he's even a little bit more leftist than I am. Right. I'm a registered Republican. Right. Who voted for Barack Obama. Right. You have to talk to me about, you got to back off a little bit, my friend, okay? Because bottom line, Worst case scenario, it's Barack or Romney. Uh, Romney. Right. Do you want Romney? Did you hear what I said tonight? No, no, I didn't. That's, that's, that's what, my what, point. What, what time oh, did you get? Oh, no, no, you hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. I did not. Hold up. Hold up. Let's, we, we, we're going to be civil here. We're gonna be, one at a time, we're going to be civil. Let me ask you a question. What time did you arrive in this room tonight? Recently when you saw me waving my hand because well, I... Well, shut up and sit down then. All right, okay. Shut up and sit down. Let's sign books. God bless you. Thank you for coming out. Thank you, Mr. Smiley. Thank you, Mr. Smiley, for gracing us again. The book signing, you can purchase your books right by the front, Barnes & Noble, and you can line up right over here. Thanks so much.